0: are in 3rd John today. As you know, we've been walking through all of the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Today's the first message of this two-part series, and then next week we'll finish up uh, this letter, which I think will bring great encouragement to us. It really talks a lot about missions and missionaries and what that looks like, And, and so I've got some memories Uh, Growing up, I can even remember before our family for one year moved to Chicago, Illinois, uh, my second grade year. Before that, we attended a Lutheran church. My uh, parents had not surrendered their lives to Jesus yet, but they were very good church people. And so we would always sit in the front row. Uh, For whatever reason, we just, we liked it up there. My parents did anyway. And I was kind of a a crazy little guy. Uh, Just uh, didn't really know what was right, what was wrong. I can remember one Sunday... During, obviously, the message, I told my parents I had to go to the restroom, and it's kind of a smaller congregation, and maybe even a smaller room than this with those pews that had the red fabric on them, and so I went to the restroom, and I thought, boy, I don't know what what hit my brain, but I thought, well, this would be a great opportunity for me just to stick my pants on my head and walk back in the room, and so that's what I did. As a kindergartner, I went to the restroom, put my, my jeans on my head, and walked right up the middle aisle. Uh, My parents, I didn't remember the pastor's uh, response. My parents said he just stopped dead in his tracks. Well, there you go, something like that. So that's a crazy memory from then. I also remember uh, in the back, we had a big swing set. And do you remember those swing sets that had the poles that came down and there was a seat on either side and there was a floorboard and you would just go back and forth like this? And so uh, during church one day somehow i once again liked going to the bathroom as a kid so my parents had to go and so instead of going to the bathroom i went out and i got on that swing thing and it was going back and forth and i realized oh i could be in trouble i i didn't realize how long i'd been out there and so i thought i'm gonna stop it so i stuck my leg right in between the floor slats snapped my leg uh someone ran in got my mom darren's just broken his leg my mom comes running out all i remember after that is going to Sonic. (laughs) So uh, it was a big treat for us back then. I also remember on two different occasions in particular, uh, there were missionaries who would come into town. And and this really extended through about my sixth or seventh grade year where these missionaries would be in town, they'd show up and, and they'd bring their slides. Remember the old projectors that you could individually load slides and there would be a screen on the stage and they would just clip through those slides and, and uh, talk about what God was doing in other countries and how they were involved and a part. And it was always, uh, on the one hand, kind of neat to see what they were showing us. On the other hand, it was kind of like, who are these guys and what is this? Really, the context of, of being missional, missionaries, has changed so much, even in the last 25 years in the life of the church. Growing up, I always thought of being in context of, of actually being called to a foreign mission field, being a missionary, and I remember messages that spoke of that, but we didn't necessarily talk in terms of being missional where we were. We talked about the importance of sharing the gospel and discipling, but that the term missional was just different. And then I went to college at Southwest Baptist University, transferring from Wichita State, and I remember conversations in classrooms with these professors and my bible classes my business classes and, and everywhere else that I went in the dorms conversation began to focus on being missional looking for short-term mission opportunities whether it be in the states or outside of the states and so I had a couple of opportunities with that at the same time I was a student pastor and looking to lead our students into different mission opportunities and then Um, as the years progressed, when the church used to be of a position where we're going to build as big of buildings as possible, have massive sanctuaries, go for the mega, and that's how we're going to grow the church, and then we'll send people out to do short-term missions, occasionally a missionary. All of that's changed in the context of our our world, our our church life, and now uh, we're focused on church planning, and we're really getting back to 2,000 years ago when the church was launched in Acts. We look at opportunities there and what the Lord uh, has has done, did then, and now does with expanding bodies of believers where it's not so much about coming to this mega-gathering and continuing to grow that, although that does have a place in our world. It's more of sending out, building, reaching unreached people groups. And we know uh, the Northeast, the Northwest... Uh, the uh, the areas of um, California, of um, the different coasts, West Coast, East Coast, even to a degree, some of the Midwest in Kansas, there are a lot of areas who are very gospel poor and don't really have opportunity to have a consistent pastor who comes in. And we as a church, as you know, have been talking about Multiply 2028 uh, for some time now. And COVID's taken place, and we're going to visit that again in in a few moments in the message, but really the drive and desire for us to become more and more missional in our approach to life, living in missional homes, seeing our lives as God intentionally placing us exactly where we are for the sake of sharing the gospel, sharing our story, and seeing God work in the midst of that is just a a built-in part of our DNA and continues to grow. You know, one of the reasons Stacey McCauley is, is with us today is because she's talking about an opportunity that we have again in 2021 in India. There's a sign-up table. She's got some information about that. If you have a heart to become a short-term missionary and to fall in love with a group of people, you've got that. That's one of the reasons we, on our campuses, share that. Well, we've got individuals to do that. Stacy has gone, she and Rob, for years uh, to serve these Kids in in India and share the gospel and love these kids and love these families. They've seen a lot of great things happening. When David Neely came to our church several years ago, uh, being a former uh, labor and wage investigator for the federal government, oh, sorry, wrong occupation, being a missionary, (laughs) because they were missionaries in, in Africa, they really have helped over the last almost 12 years transform how we see, how we perceive as followers missions uh, that we are on track and it's been exciting to see all that the Lord's done in the past uh, several years in particular in the life of our church body. Well, this individual we're going to see this letter written to today Gaius from John is exactly along the same path of, of this missional opportunity. Gaius's involvement, uh, though he wasn't directly a missionary, he was definitely missional in his approach and and John, being very encouraged in this letter that he writes to Gaius, uh, will show us some things about Gaius' life um, and actually will challenge us in some ways as uh, he lived a missional life of both gospel integrity and action. That's really where application and our challenge is going to come today. Uh, you know, we've had the opportunity last couple of weeks to read all of 2 John. Again, it's a short letter. This, too, is a short letter. And so I want to read the entirety of Third John, then I'll pray, and then we'll start to dive in verse to verse, and and look at this this really special letter. All right, 3 John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but... Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony of everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. All right, let's pray together. God, this will be a tremendous source of encouragement and challenge for us this morning, your word, in the way that, John writes, has written to Gaius and the encouragement that he gives, but all the richness that's found in it. I pray that you would help us to mine those things this morning. And that we would, in applying these to our lives as well, having more of a focus, sharing our story and sharing the gospel with those around us for the sake of the kingdom. Understanding, again, that we are intentionally placed exactly where we are by you for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. Help us. Be with us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first we see uh, the missional life is one of gospel integrity. In verse 1, John, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. We know in looking and studying so long in 1 John and then the last couple of weeks in 2 John, this, this balance between love and truth and how that's supposed to be a part of us as well as we approach. Uh, the world as we approach those who are lost in particular and we have relationship with believers, there's to be a balance there. We've talked in past weeks about how if if it's imbalanced, if one takes more priority over the other, then our lives either become very hard, um, very uh, strained relationally in the way we communicate uh, the love of God, God's word, the gospel to people. And if we're too emphasizing on Uh, the area of love that it can become mushy and we we fail to share the gospel and and so there needs to be um, this this balance if you think of a river you think of um, truth being the river and then on the other sides the banks if you will be love and wisdom or discernment and wisdom or love and discernment there there are balances and boundaries in which we uh, share our lives with others and John being so encouraged he he refers to Gaius as beloved, which means they had a very good relationship, deep relationship that all centered around, which we've already read, and we'll look at more, the same mission in the kingdom focus and advancing the gospel and proclaiming Jesus and the life-saving opportunity he gives to all. So he begins that, referring to himself as the elder, and then this specific letter being written to this individual. Now remember, 2 John was written to the church, in general, as was First John, this specifically being written uh, to this individual, who he loved in truth. In verse 2, John goes on, beloved, there it is again, he, he refers to him in that way, so it shows this endearment of this relationship that he has with him. I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So there are some who have taken that verse in particular and said, well, that's, that's the health and wealth gospel. That's the prosperity gospel. You can see in John's word that uh, basically in what he's communicating to Gaius and is praying for Gaius is this, this health and wealth idea. If you're not familiar as much with the prosperity gospel, basically what that communicates is that it is God's will for everyone who is a follower of Jesus to be very wealthy, very healthy, and have an easy life. Well, if you spend any time at all in either the Old or the New Testaments uh, with God's Word talking about these individuals who follow Jesus, even Jesus' life himself, we know it's the opposite. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Now, there are times when God with certain individuals, families, uh, blesses in different ways. Obviously, we're all to be blessed relationally, but John was not heralding this idea in his communication in his letter writing to Gaius hey, I'm praying for health and wealth, I'm praying a prosperity gospel. No, he's saying in this that he was praying that all would go well with him and that he might be in good health as it went with his soul. So apparently his soul was so rich, his relationship with Christ was so deep that we'll see in later verses next week how there may have been a health issue for Gaius. And so what he was saying is he hoped and prayed that the Lord would do such a work in his life that his physical health would begin to match his spiritual health. So he's really not talking about in these verses, in this intro, finances in any way, shape, or form. He's, he's striking in the fact that Gaius was a deep-seated lover of Jesus, always looking to make a difference in the lives of those around him. And so he was praying specifically in that, uh, that God would also add to his health. There's no real record of showing Gaius being a missionary himself it's evident in in the verses that we're going to look at that he actually supported missionaries who would come in would invest his life in that way and as he did that he was furthering the gospel It continues in verse three for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth so he shares with Gaius, John does in this, how much he was rejoicing when those around, those with whom Gaius was investing in, these missionaries or these other followers of Jesus who would travel through Gaius' area, Gaius would take care of. He would feed, he would house them, he would would help them manage their trips. They would go and they would share the gospel. And and so he was saying how much he rejoiced in what God was doing in the life of, of Gaius. He was serious about being missional. And so John receiving testimony of how Gaius had blessed their lives, had invested in them, encouraged John to the point where he was sharing that back with Gaius, I mean, you're on track. You're doing exactly what God has called you to do, who God has called you to be. They've testified to your truth, that you were holding to love, holding to truth, and that you were walking in the truth. And what an encouragement that is. We've all had people in our lives who have done that for us. they are individuals over the track, regardless of age, who have loved us well. Loved us well in the gospel. Diligently prayed for us. Supported us. Encouraged us. Invested in our lives. It's really the picture when he talks about children in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. It's that John invested in these individuals, including in Gaius. And then when he heard testimony of them walking with Jesus, making a difference, striving, it brought him great joy. And so we, as well, being invested in by others, when those names come to our minds and hearts, we rejoice too. God, thank you for... A family I mentioned a few weeks ago, Leanna Winoma Shoemaker, for blessing my life, for investing in me. God, thank you for Mitch and Deborah Stennett. and When I was a young kid servant in student ministry, who loved me well. Thank you for Kevin and Kathy Allen, John and Donna DeCatch, these individuals who, as a new couple living in Phoenix, Arizona, came and invested in us, loved us, prayed for us, encouraged us, challenged us. We will be forever grateful for not only those, but, but many more in not the exact way of their leading us to Christ, but investing in us in many ways just by lifestyle discipling us, taking someone who's younger. You understand that if you've walked with Jesus for a long time, those who have invested in your life as well. The challenge comes to us in this. Who would consider you to be that for them? Braden sort of knows, sort of doesn't. Jackie Kincaid, Jim Keepus. Right now, Dennis and Pam Williams. My kids, Aim, Lauren, Pierre, Rod. Those names ringing a bell with you guys, Brad. People who have directly invested in their lives, discipling them. They, in turn, One day, even more than now, God, thank you for those people who took a chance and invested in in me. We see it, Tiff and I. How did you respond as a parent if you have been given kids? With those who have taken the time, the effort, the investment, and invested in the lives of your children. Irreplaceable. What of those Sunday school teachers in these classes that we have? that pour their lives out for you. See, there's an appreciation, and that should carry out from our lives as well, that we deeply invest so when people transition, they give glory to God because we were yielded. He's the one that gets the glory for all of it. But there should be this concept of in our lives that we've invested so much that our children, those who we spiritually shepherd and responsible for, should bring great joy when they're walking in the truth. And it's interesting that he, in the next verse, 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. See, Gaius got it. He understood it. Gaius invested not only in his buddies, because some would maybe see that, well, Gaius, you know, of course it's easy to love those who love you, and, you know, you've got your friends, but, but the reference to those you don't even know or know well. I mean, Gaius was pouring his life out for the brothers. That challenges us. His life matched up with, his action matched up with what he was saying, his words. James 2, 14 to 18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, again, we know that we are saved by grace through faith Uh, in this letter. It's not communicating that uh, another gospel or that works can get us there. He's not saying that. In verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Hey, really, I'm sorry that you're struggling. See ya. We've done that, and that's been done in our lives. Obviously, blessing on our end when we're able to bless someone else um, gives glory to the Lord, refocuses us. We realize, and we're going to talk in a moment about, about Gaius and his example there. We understand when people have significantly stepped into our lives, whether it be time, talent, resources, whatever it is, and they've loved us well and invested in us, how much that means to us. That is faith and action being lived out together. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We are called to action. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James 1, 26 to 27, just one chapter back. And I've had multiple conversations in the last six to eight weeks with individuals who are doing exactly this. And I always get emotional. I won't this morning, hopefully. But but do you see people living this out? If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue and deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Here is religion that is pure and undefiled. Here is what truly marks a follower of Jesus before God the Father. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, in their distress, and to keep oneself from being unstained from the world. This care of orphans and widows, how many in our church family adopt? India, it's a picture of caring for orphans and widows, the missional involvement that we have in the city with Mission Southside Advice and Aid, so many others, Rolling Ridge is intentional in our lives to do exactly what this is saying, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And then it talks about being unpolluted by the world. So keeping our focus so much on track that our eyes are on Jesus, that in the midst of that, we're not allowing our lives to be corrupted or polluted or for the message of the gospel to be distorted. We're not perfect. We're still struggling. We, we all will do that. But it shows us the picture of Of who we're called to be what we're called to do and then and then this gaius loving people with whom he didn't even know well you realize that part of our giving at church goes directly to the cooperative program also cooperative program if you're not familiar with that it would be worth your researching that it is monies that go directly to support missionaries in the united states and around the world that's one of the reasons we partner with the southern baptist convention why we're in sbc church is because that's important to us and so as you give you are supporting directly missionaries all over the world did you realize that that you are actually helping the gospel be spread all over the world oh, that's humbling You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Okay, what is is John talking about here? He's saying that there were these individuals who we talked about over the last five weeks who would go into a town, they would share the gospel for personal benefit, and then they would demand, in essence, these individuals to support them and give them money and funds. It's interesting in John's reference here how that was not what was taking place with these individuals who were going and sharing the gospel. In fact, the opposite was true. They didn't have demands upon, in particular, the Gentile population base. They weren't saying, okay, Gentiles, you were lost. I've shared the gospel. Now, you just you know pour it on for me. No, actually, they refused it. If the Gentiles offered to be financially a part of whatever Their ministry was in this season, they would say, we don't want that from you. All we're asking for of you is to deeply fall in love with Jesus and to share the gospel and make the difference. See the difference between some who prop themselves for a certain thing and they basically peddle the gospel for financial gain. And then there are some who stay on track, deeply integrated. They don't have that expectation. They don't don't force that or cause that. They're, They're not living in, you know... $10 $10 million homes as, as preachers who, who peddle. They, they focus in. In fact, Francis Chan, one of the most unbelievable individuals I have ever seen. All of the proceeds from all the books he's ever written have gone to furthering the gospel in other places. He doesn't even, at least hadn't, as of two years ago, taken funds from the proceeds of his book for himself. He gave it all away, focusing on this. And now they're family living in another country, abandoning what's comfortable. There are others, I'm sure, who come to your mind as far as those who have, for the sake of the gospel, left everything. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, that they may be fellow workers for the truth. You see, there's this hand-in-hand gospel mission. And as we hold out the gospel, there should be authentic, genuine Integrity, character, love, strength. All of the glory focused on God, not on us. And as he works, God works and moves in the lives of people. We see that our testimony is having more opportunity to be shared. You know, in our our society, the gospel's not heralded. And many are so resistant to it That they can't even for a moment consider that there's actually someone who's genuinely, authentically living out the gospel in front of them. And so when someone is and does, they step back and go, wow, well, maybe there is something to this. Is that you? Is that me? called to support the brothers we're called to live in integrity we're called to action we're not called to sit one story and i'll wrap it in john piper's book don't waste your life he makes this deeply convicting statement about possessions if we want to make people glad in god our lives must look as if god not possessions is our joy His point is that when we understand our mission, all the decisions that we make about what we have at our disposal are funneled through that mission. In the same chapter, he illustrates this by remembering how World War II changed how Americans viewed what they had. This is fascinating. I didn't know this. I heard, but uh, rubber was needed for the war effort and gasoline and metal. A women's basketball game at Northwestern University was stopped so that the referee and all 10 players could scour the floor for a lost bobby pin. You see that happening today? Usually it's a contact lens, right? Not a bobby pin, but Americans pitched in to support strict rationing programs, and their boys turned out as volunteers in various collection drives. Soon, butter and milk were restricted along with canned goods and meats. Shoes became scarce and paper and silk. People grew victory gardens and drove at the gas-saving victory speed of 35 miles an hour. America and Americans view their resources as being at the mercy of the government and the war effort. This was called living on a wartime footing. Piper argues that the example of World War II-era Americans should be the template for understanding how we are to view resources. We are called to live in our lives as in a wartime effort and our resources at the disposal of that mission. How convicting is that? But it's true. If all followers of Jesus, including the guy looking at you right now, viewed resources in that way, how much would the gospel be furthered? We're all works in progress. Guys had his strengths, he had his weaknesses. But he was a man yielded to the Savior, and God did great things. Where are you missionally today?